0: Shining the spotlight on the future of hockey.
1: Hey, it's Pat Smith of the Town Chiefs. It's Adam Bocas. Hey, it's Joe Volano from the Drummondville Voltageurs. Hey, it's Quinn Hughes from the University of Michigan.
0: I am Don Club. I'm Jacob Bernard-Docker of the Old Coast Oilers. It's Joe Bryan. Hi, it's Barrett Hayden of the Sioux Greyhounds.
1: Brady Kachok from the Boston University Terriers.
0: Major Junior.
1: In the 100th year of the Memorial Cup, the Yankee Panthers team tall have won it for the first time.
0: NCAA. Face off 50 50. That's it. Minnesota Nice. Minnesota Duluth. National champions. The World Juniors. Time winding down. And Finland has won the World Junior Championship in Vancouver in spectacular style. The NHL Draft. The
1: Buffalo Sabres are proud to select for defenseman Rasmus Dalin.
0: And more. Oh, yes! Oh, my goodness. We're not going home yet, baby! This is The Pipeline Show. Here we go.
2: Welcome to The Pipeline Show. My name is Keith Flaming. Thanks for uh, downloading this episode of the program. I hope you're a uh, returning listener. If you're not and you're a newcomer, then I hope you'll be back again as we uh, continue on with the world of prospect hockey. As always, we start with the question of the day, which I post on Twitter. That went up earlier today, actually just a few moments ago as I'm recording this now. The question of the day brought to you by the Edmonton Oil Kings, the Oil Kings who are through round two of the uh, WHL's playoffs. They await the winner of the Saskatoon and Prince Albert series, and lo and behold, that is the question of the day. That series is deadlocked 2-2. Game five goes tonight in Prince Albert. Game six on Sunday in Saskatoon, and if necessary, game seven will be I believe on Tuesday, in uh, back in Prince Albert. Question today, pretty simple. Who wins that series and advances to take on Edmonton in the WHL's Eastern Conference Final? You can answer that, leave a comment if you wish. It's a poll question, but you can find that at Twitter, at TPS underscore Gee, which is my uh, Twitter handle. If you're not uh, following me already, why don't you give me a follow? The Oil Kings will get set to, uh, now they will start, the conference final on the road. Doesn't matter whether it's Saskatoon or Prince Albert, the All-Kings will be on the road for that series. Uh, playoff dates have not been named yet, but I would probably think the 23rd would be uh, game three in either the 24th or the 25th uh, for game four if they don't want to play it back-to-back. But uh, that's what I would expect at least. So a little time now uh, until the All-Kings are back at home. You can get tickets for the Oil Kings playoff games. You go to oilkings.ca, click on the uh, tickets part on the toolbar, and uh, that'll lead you to everything you need to know. And uh, for those folks who signed up for the playoff passes, the $79 playoff passes, you've had, what was it? They went, They had uh, three home games against uh, the Medicine Hat Tigers and two home games against the Calgary Hitmen. They swept that series. So uh, your $80 playoff pass means uh, you're already down to $16 per game for your tickets, and uh, you know you've got two more games for sure. That takes the, the uh, ticket prices down to 11 bucks and uh, 40 cents, or something like that. Uh, I think uh, people are getting their money's worth, those at least that uh, picked up their playoff passes when they first came out. Let's get to the news and notes portion. Uh, at this time of year, it is a basically a CHL playoff update. Last week, we started in the queue and worked our way west. Let's do it the other way around. Uh, since we've been talking about the WHL already, the Oil Kings, as we mentioned, get past the Calgary Hitmen in four games. They await Saskatoon and Prince Albert to finish their series. On the other side, Vancouver also swept their way to the conference final. They get past the Victoria in four games, and uh, it was a kind of a similar series to the uh, Oil Kings and Calgary. one Two games went to overtime, so probably closer series than the uh, actual sweep would indicate. But those individual games, the team that won, Edmonton and Vancouver, were the better teams in those games as well, so kind of deserving to win those games. The other series in the West that's going on, Spokane right now, up 3 nothing on the Everett Silvertips. Game 4 goes uh, tonight in Spokane, so the uh, Silvertips with their backs to the wall, and it's do-or-die time for them. They could get swept, and I don't think anybody, even those people who uh, predicted the Spokane Chiefs to win that series, No way anybody predicted a sweep in that one. Right now, leading the WHL playoffs in scoring, Davis Kosh and uh, Bowen Byram of the Vancouver Giants with 14 and 13 points, respectively. How about this, though? Jake Lasician is uh, still third. His team didn't get out of the first round, so tell what kind of series he had in the opening round against Calgary. That was a very high-scoring series between the Lethbridge Hurricanes and the Calgary Hitmen. Riley Woods of the Spokane Chiefs, Vince Laschiavo. And uh, Tristan Nilsson, uh, lost Galva with the Oil Kings. Tristan Nilsson with the Vancouver Giants all have 10 points as well. And can't win without uh, quality net mining. Ian Scott giving that to Prince Albert. He has a 176 say, uh, goals against average and a 929 save percentage. Uh, Trent Miner from Vancouver, a 192 goals against and a 915 save percentage. Dylan Miskew right there as well with a 193 goals against and a 920 save percentage. Go to the Ontario Hockey League. Uh, Only one series is complete. The Ottawa 67 sweep the Sudbury Wolves for nothing, but uh, that was not without some uh, drama. Game four goes to triple overtime before the 67s ended that series. They await the winner between Niagara and Oshawa. That series is tied 2-2, and uh, game five doesn't go until Saturday. So the 67s will have uh, a bit of a break here waiting for their next-round opponent. Uh, In the Western Conference, both of those series could potentially wrap up tonight. The London Knights leading the Guelph Storm 3-1, and uh, Saginaw is up 3-1 on the Sioux Greyhounds. Uh, the Guelph Storm avoided elimination, winning game 4-4-3 at home, and the Sioux Greyhounds uh, won game 4 at home as well. Uh, they shut out Saginaw on that one, 3 nothing Statistical leaders in the OHL playoffs, Evan Bouchard continues to lead... The OHL in scoring. He has uh, 19 points. Owen Tippett hot on his heels. He has 17 points. Then you've got Lucas Choto uh, with the Ottawa 67s it's 16. Alex Formanton of uh, London with 15 and uh, three players with 14 points. They are Barrett Hayton of the Sioux Greyhounds. Morgan Frost also with the Greyhounds. And uh, Kyle Maximovich of the Ottawa 67s. And a last stop in the CHL uh, is the Q. Two teams on to the uh, conference finals. Or to the semifinals, uh, Roy Miranda and Halifax sweep their way through round two in the queue. Drummondville is up 3-1 on Sherbrooke. Game five goes tonight in Drummondville. And uh, Ramuski is ahead of uh, Cape Breton 3-1. Game five in that series also tonight, but it's in Cape Breton. So the Screaming Eagles are playing at home tonight looking to avoid elimination. Peter Abandonato of uh, the Roy Naranda Huskies leads the Q and the CHL in playoff scoring. He has 21 points. Raphael Lavoie, the CHL player of the week, he has 20 points uh, for the Mooseheads, uh, followed by Joel Teasdale of the Huskies. Alexi Lafreniere from the Rimousko-Oceanic, he has 15 points. Noah Dobson does as well. He's playing this year for the Roy Huskies. Samuel Harvey of those Huskies has a 143 goals against average. Uh, but Colton Ellis, don't sleep on him. Draft eligible this year. a buck seventy-one average in net for Ramuski. And the last news and notes to get to, the Frozen Four began yesterday on Thursday. Two pretty exciting games. One of them going to overtime. The early game saw the uh, defending champs, Minnesota Duluth and the Providence Friars go right down to the wire. Two empty net goals at the end of it, kind of make it a lopsided score. But a very close game. Duluth holds on. Uh, to win 4-1 in that contest. Dylan Sandberg with a goal and an assist. Justin Richards with two goals uh, to help push the Bulldogs to the uh, national championship game for the third consecutive year. They are defending champs, so they could be the first team since 2004-2005 to repeat since uh, Denver did it back then. The other game was uh, a thriller for sure. And, uh, boy, a a weird one. Contentious at times. The uh, UMass Minutemen... Uh, from Massachusetts. They defeat Denver in overtime, 4-3 the final. Three guys got kicked out of the game uh, for uh, headshots. Another guy should have been kicked out of the game right at the end with uh, like a minute and a half left to go, minute and 50 seconds, something like that. That one was let go. It would have given Denver a five-minute major uh, to close out regulation time and into the overtime. Uh, That didn't happen, though, and uh, it was of all the uh, plays that where guys were kicked out, it was the one that was the most flagrant and the most deserving. It was uh, Bobby Trevino uh, just getting an elbow up into the head of of one of the Pioneers uh, and uh, was not seen, but uh, clearly showed on the ESPN replays. It would have been a big moment, obviously, and a big boost uh, for the chances of the uh, Pioneers. So the Frozen Four, the national championship game, is set, goes on Saturday. That's going to see the defending national champion, Minnesota Duluth Bulldogs, going up against the uh, Massachusetts Minutemen. And uh, that should be a great game. We will uh, preview that game a little bit later on in the show. In fact, why don't we just get to what's coming down the pipe today. Only three guests today because of, remember we had the Frozen Four Coaches show earlier this week, but the timing to uh, put it all together was a little bit tricky. So uh, here's what's coming up on the show today. We will start with an In the Dub segment for Dubnetwork.ca. Keep up to date on everything happening around the Western Hockey League by visiting our friends at Dubnetwork.ca. .ca. Andrew Peer, the, the uh, voice of the Edmonton Oil Kings this season, uh, he's going to join us and uh, obviously update everybody on how the Oil Kings have got, got to this point and uh, look around at the other three series in the league as well. From there, we'll visit with uh, Brandon Ewan-Cheshin, the uh, voice of the Spruce Grove Saints, as the Alberta Junior Hockey League final gets going this weekend. The Saints are on the road. They take on the uh, Brooks Bandits, and uh, we'll talk about that series with Brandon, and uh, we'll close out today's show. Just three guests today, but he's the show closer for sure. Dave Starman from uh, CBS Sports, and uh, you can watch him right now on ESPN as an analyst uh, between periods, Just, just does a fantastic job at that. He's in Buffalo, obviously, and he will help set the stage for tomorrow's national championship game between UMD and UMass. The College Hockey segment, of course, will be brought to you by College Hockey, Inc. If you have a uh, member in your family that's a player and considering their options to play south of the border or if you're in the States and you want to stay not south of the border because that would be Mexico. If you want to explore your options of playing college hockey, College Hockey, Inc. is a great website, a great resource that you should tap into to help uh, stay on track, know what you have to do or not do to maintain your NCAA eligibility. You can always... Drop them a note. Get in contact with College Hockey Inc. as well and uh, answer any questions that they that you might have. That's all coming up in a matter of moments. We will start with uh, our In the Dub segment. Andrew Peard of the Edmonton Oil Kings. He's up first here on the Pipeline Show. <laughs>
1: Hi, this is Curtis Lazar of the Edmonton Oil Kings. Hey, it's Brett Pollock. Hi, I'm Kugumov. Hey, it's Tristan Jarry. Hi, this is uh, Lauren Breslau.
0: Griffin Reinhardt. This is Aaron Irving.
2: Hey, it's Dyson Males. This is Henning Samuelson. I'm Thomas Winsler. Hey, I'm Mark Pesek of the
0: Edmonton Oil Kings, and you're listening to The Pipeline Show.
3: Nothing compares to the smile on a child's face after their wish has been granted. The Rainbow Society of Alberta is dedicated to granting wishes throughout the province to children who have been diagnosed with a life-threatening or severe chronic medical illness. And you can help too. View the wishes, refer a child, and donate at rainbowsociety.ab.ca or get involved as a volunteer. Having a wish come true fills a child's heart with hope and happiness. Visit rainbowsociety.ab.ca today.
0: You're listening to The Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming. We know each other. He's a friend from work.
2: Back on The Pipeline Show, getting uh, ready to have a chat with uh, Andrew Peard, the uh, voice of the Edmonton Oil Kings through round two. Now a sweep of the uh, Calgary Hitmen off to uh, round three, the Eastern Conference Finals. Don't know who the Oil Kings will play yet, as Saskatoon and Prince Albert uh, deadlocked at two games apiece right now uh, as well. Andrew, uh, welcome back to the Pipeline Show. Uh, Long uh, trip back from uh, Calgary this morning, but uh, I have to think there was uh, an air of uh, happiness on that bus after the sweep of the Calgary Hitman.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The guys were fired up, and... uh you know, for good reason. It was a, a tough series, and it sounds weird to say that after a four-game sweep, but the Calgary Hitman certainly made the Edmonton Oil Kings earn each and every one of those four wins. Um, obviously, it got a little bit easier in Game Four with the, the six-nothing win, as the, the Oil Kings were able to exert their will early on in that one and um, let the, the doubt creep in on the Calgary Hitman obviously in the the 0-3 hole, big enough. And then when you get down in that uh, pivotal game four, it's it's tough to find the motivation. So, uh, credit to the Edmonton Oil Kings, though, they, they they went down to Calgary, they needed two wins, they wanted two wins, uh, and they got the two wins.
2: Well, and you mentioned that it's, uh, it was tougher than it would look on paper. Two of those games went to overtime, and you go back to game one, and it was uh, really close to being a uh, victory in game one. For Calgary, They uh, the Oil Kings tied it with, uh, like, 20 seconds left to go.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, you look at this series, and there's a, a couple of mistakes by the Hitmen that really shot themselves in the foot, um, and it could have been a, a much different series. You mentioned they they lead two nothing for you know all the way to four minutes left in that game one, and they they choked that lead away. But to make matters worse, in overtime they virtually score on themselves as Mark Castluck fired off his own goal post on a faceoff win and. Uh Jake Neighbors, obviously the benefactor, a guy who's not afraid to go hard to the net and he was rewarded as he was able to pop that into a, a wide open cage. And then even in game two, which was a four one win for Edmonton and um obviously for uh for the Oil Kings, uh maybe their their best effort of the series uh, aside from game four. But you know, it's a one nothing game midway through the hockey game, and then Carson Folk uh one ups the captain Mark Catholic by actually firing it into his own net and then it becomes two nothing Edmonton and You know, they can never really get their bearings in that game. So, uh, for the Oil Kings, um, they they caught some breaks early on in the 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 series. And uh, you know, I I, if you're going to have success in the playoffs, you need some breaks along the way. The Oil Kings obviously got theirs, and then uh, they took care of business uh, on the road after that.
2: Was that a topic of conversation down in Calgary at all? Because like off the air between uh, you know in the media room or whatever, because that was unbelievable to see, and it didn't just happen those two times. It happened three or four times in the first two games. I think it happened once in Calgary, too, uh, except uh, Jack McNaughton made the save on it. He seemed more prepared for it by that point. But was it something that came up, just how the hitman would win the faceoff? Always seemed to be on the right side of the net. Like, if it was to McNaughton's right, he shouldn't be expecting a shot on net by his own team.
1: Yeah, it was. Uh, I mentioned it to, to Brad Curl, uh, the great voice of, of the Calgary hitman, um, and he said, no, this hasn't been something that we've seen all season long. It's just popped up somehow in this series. And the odd part is with, with Mark Cass in that right wing circle, you would think he would mostly on that being not uh, the, the strong side, you put it into the corner, but yeah. somehow he ended up putting it on the net. And you mentioned in game three, that was, that was the most dangerous one. He fired it with full steam <laughs> behind it. Fortunately, it had uh, Jack McNaught in the chest. I didn't dare bring it up with hitman head coach, Steve Hamilton. When I talked to him uh, prior to game four, as I, I kind of felt that that had uh, run its course, but it was strange how that that just continued to happen, and like you mentioned, though the the most strange part of it was that Jack McNaughton continued to be surprised by it. Uh, at a certain point, you almost have to expect it.
2: I uh, speak with Andrew Peard, uh, a valuable break for the Oil Kings. Something that uh, whoever their opponent will be in the conference final probably won't have, as uh, that series tied two uh, two. So at least uh, it'll go at least six games. Uh, this time of year, everybody's playing through some bumps and bruises, but the Oil Kings have had. A couple of guys in and out of the lineup because they haven't been able to go. Um, so this is a good break uh, for for the guys physically, if not mentally.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the physical standpoint. I mean, granted, um, the the Oil Kings, for uh, in terms of playoffs, have been pretty fortunate. Um, you know, a couple of guys are a little bit nicked up, but uh, aside from that, nothing too major uh, with the Oil Kings. I'll knock on wood as I say that, but they're a team that struggled with with injuries all throughout the regular season, and finally at the right time. They're starting to get healthy, and now, like you mentioned, uh, some valuable rest both mentally and physically, and um, it'll be interesting to see how they approach this next um, you know, eight, nine days. That's likely what it's going to be in between games. Probably see the start of Round 3 Friday or Saturday in northern Saskatchewan somewhere for the Oil Kings, and now it's a question of how much rest do you want to give the guys, uh, how much practice time do you want to mix in there to try and keep them sharp, but um, it, Brad Lauer has shown that uh, he's got all the right answers so far. Uh, during the course of this regular season and here into the playoffs, so uh, I imagine he's he's already thought about this. He's got a, a schedule in place for his guys, and um, he'll make sure that they're they're good to go once round three opens up.
2: On a scale of one to ten, how have the old Kings played in the playoffs so far, in your opinion? And and I'll I'll let you think about it for a second. I'll just say that I've seen the old Kings play a lot better than they have to this point, um, and they're going to have to play a lot better, I think, when it comes to the next round, no matter if it's Saskatoon or PA. They'll be on the road. They'll have to. They'll. They'll probably be. I would think considered the underdog going into that series uh, because they're uh, starting on the road. Um, I've seen Edmonton play better than they have, and they're going to have to. Uh, how, what would? What's your take on the way they've looked so far in the postseason?
1: Yeah, in terms of a, a one to ten ranking, I think he it somewhere in like seven and a half. Um, you know, it, the offense is, is really what struggled. There's been a lack of polish. Passes through the neutral zone aren't clicking like we saw during the course of the regular season. Zone entries aren't quite as clean, not allowing them to get set up and um, have extended periods of zone time. However, defensively, that's been really good for the Edmonton Oil Kings, specifically in that series against the Calgary Hitmen. I mean, four games, they limited the Hitmen to 92 shots on goal, um, just four goals against, and that's that's the Calgary Hitmen who scored 29 goals in the first round of the WHL playoffs. And instead uh, in, in round number two, they're held the four. So I, I think on the defensive side, the oil Kings are, are really happy enough, you know, at the start of the year, that was the strength of the Edmonton oil Kings. We talked at length with some of the guys they had coming back, um, you know, and then you, you mix in the, the acquisition of a, of a Parker Galvis along the way, who's been uh, nothing short of steady for the Edmonton oil Kings on that back end. So, um, I, I think there definitely is, is room for improvement for the Old Kings here in the playoffs. Um, I, I, I saw them getting better, though, throughout the course uh, of that series uh, against the Calgary Hitmen and, uh, of course, culminating in the big Game 4 win. But, uh, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. We've seen them play a lot better. We've seen them play a lot more consistent. Um, but, but maybe this is the new norm with the playoffs. It's, it's weird because the, the game doesn't change uh, when it goes from regular season to playoffs. I mean, the, the ice sheet is still the same size. The rules, theoretically, are still the same, although there is some debate uh, around that. But um, for whatever reason, goals seem harder to come by, and there seems to be a lot less room to operate. The Kings just need to find a way to continue to find success uh, in the limited room that they do have to operate.
2: Well, the uh, the big guns for the Oil Kings are leading the team in uh, playoff scoring, although the secondary scoring has kept pace uh, with uh, the top line. Now, Vince Galvo leads the way. He's got 10 points uh, through 10 games. Then you've got Quinn Benjafield. He's got nine. Fixed Volanski's got eight. Those are not surprises by any stretch, but suddenly Jake Neighbors is, uh, vaulted to the top of the scoring as well. He's got nine points. Andrew Fighting not that far behind. How about Wyatt McLeod? He's got uh, two goals in back to back games and six points in the, in the, uh, postseason. Um, so not surprised to see some of those names at the top, but uh, maybe a little bit of a surprise to see how much the secondary scoring has shown up for the All Kings.
1: Yeah, and and another name, how old Zach Russell, from the the press box to the box score? Yeah. He's played in three playoff games. He's got three points. Uh, He's been exceptional. And that's been the theme of the Edmonton Oil Kings that I found this year is guys seizing opportunities, starting all the way back with a goaltender, in Dylan Miskew, a guy like Parker Gavlis coming in and getting an opportunity to play uh some heavier minutes. Andrew Feynton trying to prove that, you know, obviously he does have the pedigree of being a WHL champion, but he wanted to show that he can be more than just a bit player as he's really seized an opportunity as uh, you know, sort of the the at times the one A centerman for the team, at other times the one the B centerman. And it's just guys stepping up and, and and finding their opportunity. And I think some of it has to do with um Trey Fixolansky, who had just one point in the four games against the Calgary Hitman, was held off the score sheet in the 6-0 win. He is so heavily keyed on. I think a lot of teams are, um expelling a lot of energy trying to shut down the captain of the M.Connell Kings, and that's opening things up for the other guys. Mm-hmm. You know, Scott Atkinson, he's, he, uh, and his line mates, Vlad Alistroff and Andre Pavlenko, that was probably their best game in a while there, uh, in game number four. They broke the ice. And, uh, and got that game rolling for the Oakings. And and even further to the depth, this is by far my my favorite stat of this entire season and into the postseason is they've won eight games. They have eight different guys with a game winning goal. Scott Atkinson being the latest, uh, the, the first goal in that six nothing win. So it's, it's something you need. Um, you know, the Moose Jaw Warriors, they don't have, they didn't have the forward depth. They lost out in four games in the first round. Look at the Everett Silvertips, a team that very top heavy, but there is some thinness down their lineup and now all of a sudden they're fighting for their lives against the, uh, the Spokane Chiefs. So um, you, you need to have that depth, and this is the reason why, because in the playoffs, things get a lot harder for your star players. You need those other guys to show up and, and do the job, and the Oil Kings have certainly got that.
2: I'll ask you about the other teams in the league in a second, but I have to ask about the net mining for the Oil Kings. Uh, Dylan Miskew started things off against Medicine Hat after Game 3. was a, a lackluster performance for the entire team, team not just for, for him, but Todd Scott comes in, cleans up the rest of the way, in that series, Miskew back in against Calgary wins all four of them. And, uh, I mean, he's been lights out shutting the door. It's, it's got to be a confidence thing for, although he hates that word, but Brad Lauer knows <laughs> that he can throw either guy in, uh, right now and they and he's getting success, uh, and having good performances from either guy.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, credit to Dylan Miskew. He's a guy who's bounced back all year. Yeah. Granted, not a lot of times did he struggle. I mean, there was what, maybe three or four games that, you know, he, he, he let in some, some bad goals, but it, it would, it never compounded, um, to, uh, a stretch of two or three games. And, and you mentioned it, a lackluster performance in game three of that first round series, but not just by Dylan Miske, like you said, um, it was the entire team. Unfortunately, the goaltender, he's the most noticeable player. Oftentimes when things don't go right, he had to wear it. He sat on the bench and he bided his time and credit to Todd Scott. Um, he came in, at speaking of a guy who's biding his time because he was supposed to be Edmonton's starting goaltender this year and an injury uh, took that opportunity away from him. He came in, he did the job uh, to get the team into the second round, but uh, Dylan Miskew, I, I think he'd earned a, a second chance and when he got it, uh, he definitely ran with it, stopping 88 shots of the 92 he faced in round two, his first playoff shutout uh, in game four. And uh, more importantly, because it, it isn't a high volume of shots nor is it really a, a high volume of, of dangerous scoring chances that the, the Calgary hitmen had, but they never got that second and third opportunity. This was uh, a four-game stretch from Dylan Miskew where I thought it was his cleanest performances of the season. Everything was sticking to him. There, were, there weren't pucks you know, popping off the palm of his glove hand and out into the slot or off his chest. Everything was swallowed up in and around the net. He looked so calm. He looked so poised, and uh, the Edmonton Oil Kings heading into uh, round three, they're going to need their goaltender to continue to do that.
2: Alright, Andrew, I know, uh, we haven't been able to see a lot of the other games in the, uh, in the league, cause, uh, the schedule's kind of, every time the All Kings are playing, so is everybody else, it seems like. But, uh, what do you take, what's your takeaway right now of Saskatoon and Prince Albert? It's the top two teams in the Eastern Conference, and, uh, I know I heard you earlier today on TSN, uh, 1260 here in Edmonton, um, that it's not necessarily a big shock to see this series, uh, dead even. It, it, it could very well go seven games, couldn't
1: it? Easily, easily. I think both teams, um, the, the, their rinks are so hard to win in right now. Um, Saskatoon, when they fill that barn up, I saw one was at just about 8,000 for uh, Game 4 of that series uh, against the Prince Albert Raiders. Um, and I think we could very well see the home team just hold serve throughout and Saskatoon getting down to a, a Game 7 in Prince Albert, they'll have to find a way to win at the Art Houser Centre. Uh, they were 0-4 there during the, the regular season so far, 0-2 uh, during this postseason. But, uh, you know, the... The Saskatoon Blades, um, had they gotten off to the start that the the Prince Albert Raiders had, uh, they would have been in contention for top spot in that East Division, but it took them a little while, took some tinkering with their roster. But, I mean, after Christmas, were they not neck and neck with points with the Prince Albert Raiders? Like, it was yeah. um, losses so few and far between for the Blades that it really set up uh, what is turning out to be a, a real great series between those teams. And maybe the, the surprising part is, I, I'm not surprised that it's tied at two. What did surprise me was I thought for it to be tied after four games, Saskatoon was going to have to split the first two. I thought if the Raiders got off to a two o start um, they might just be able to run away with the series so a big credit to Mitch Love and his staff for um, you know sticking with the, the game plan and, and uh, coming out in, in games three and four and getting that that series leveled even in uh, you know game four, they gave up the first goal a shorthanded goal. And, they're able to bounce right back, score four unanswered to win that. So, um, you know, I, I've been impressed with uh, with Saskatoon for for quite some time now, and yeah, no surprise for me that they're hanging in there with uh, the WHL's top team.
2: Now, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I'm pretty sure Edmonton's record against PA this year was one win, two losses, and an overtime loss.
1: Yep, that's correct. Well, uh, the, uh, the the three points they got were all in Prince Albert. What was the record against Saskatoon? I don't remember. Uh, they uh, it was two and two. They lost two games in regulation. They won one in regulation and they lost one in or they won one in overtime in Saskatoon. Okay. Well, bearing in
2: mind they will the all Kings will start on the road. They will be the underdog in the series. Is there a, a better fit in your mind, or does it really matter?
1: I I mean you can sit there and say well you don't want to take on the the top team in the WHL the Prince the Raiders but that would mean the team you're playing is a team that just knocked them off. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. you know, pick your poison in that situation. They're both such deep teams. They both got great goaltenders. Nolan Meyer has really, really found his game, maybe another gear uh, to his game here in this postseason. And of course we all know how good the Toronto Maple Leaf prospect Ian Scott is, uh, the world junior backup goaltender uh, for the Prince Albert Raiders. So um, I, I don't think there is a, a matchup that you prefer. But I think at the same time, the Edmonton Oil Kings are sitting there saying, hey, these guys don't want to play us any more than, than we want to play them. Because you look at the Edmonton Oil Kings, I, I talked about how good Saskatoon was after after Christmas. The Edmonton Oil Kings, in their last 21 games, they've won 19 of them. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that anyone's on a stretch run quite as hot as the Edmonton Oil Kings. Some of the games haven't been pretty, but at the end of the day, they've gotten the results. So Edmonton, I, I think they're... Con- confident, I stumble on that word, as Brad as I like mentioned, has, has made us double guess ourselves on, on those uh, that freezing. but um, I, I don't see any reason why the Edmonton Oil Kings wouldn't be uh, full of confidence taking on uh, either of those two clubs.
2: Out West, uh, the Vancouver Giants up 3 nothing on Victoria, that's not a surprise, but two of those games go to overtime, one of them, Vancouver, like, the shots were 40-20 to or something, but I am not I won't be surprised if it's a, a sweep for Vancouver but I guess you got to give Victoria credit for uh making it tight uh, along the way. I mean, it's kind of similar to the uh, the Edmonton Calgary series.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely and you know, credit to to Victoria. I mean, they've they've got, you know, one of their best forwards, Cole McDonald, he's he's basically been suspended for darn, darn near the whole series. I think he gets back if it goes to to a game 5. And they've got a ton of injuries as well. Uh Griffin Outhouse has really been um keeping the, the royals in those games but like you mentioned uh, the, the giants have found a way they've just been overpowering uh, over the victoria royals and i mean hey vancouver they were the class of the bc division all season long uh, not really a surprise considering what's happened with the roster of the victoria royals to f- see that they're down uh 3-0 but um i i wouldn't be surprised to see them put up a, a real good fight in, in game four and, and try and push the the giants as long as they can
2: now, what has been a surprise is the Everett Silvertips are down three uh, nothing. They lose the first two games at home. They've lost uh, by three goals and the next two games by two goals. Spokane Chiefs are just absolutely rolling right now.
1: Yeah, and I, I remember though back at the, the beginning of the season. I mean, Spokane was a, a team that was you know heavily favored uh, yep. amongst uh, you know sort of preseason pundits, and I talked about I talked to Brad Curl uh the voice of the hitman prior to uh game four down at the the saddle dome and and I posed that to him you know are you surprised by by how well Spokane has played? He said no it's it's been something that you've been waiting for all year, but you know, obviously Jared Anderson Dolan missed some time with injury, but it looks like they're they're really starting to find their groove. They've got an elite offensive talent in Jared Anderson Dolan. Riley Woods is having a tremendous playoffs. I think he's up to ten points now in eight games. Five of them have been goals. Ty Smith for my money, maybe the, the, the best defenseman uh, in the Western Hockey League this year. No one is as smooth as, as Ty Smith on the back end. And then uh, Bailey Birkin, he's a goaltender I, I saw last year uh, quite a bit when he was with the Lloydminster Bobcats in the Alberta Junior Hockey League. He can be a difference maker, and he has been. Uh, no Dawson Wetherill for the, the Chiefs as uh, he went down with uh, what appears to be a season-ending injury. And, and Bailey Birkin has stepped in and provided real good goaltending uh, for the Spokane Chiefs, but for the everett silvertips I mean they're they're down uh three oh in that series, but uh, again uh the regular season they had, I'm not quite ready to count them out, but uh, it's yeah. been a, a long time since the team came back from uh, an 0 three hole.
2: Great stuff, Andrew, thanks for this see you soon
1: thanks. Guy. thanks for having me on.
2: It's Andrew Pi he's been uh filling in for Corey Graham this season after Corey had extensive back surgery uh in the off season last year and uh, not back up on his feet in uh Ready to ride the buses yet, so Andrew's been uh, doing it all season, done a great job. Oil Kings, uh, waiting patiently to see who they'll play. The poll question once again, who do you think that will be uh, for the Oil Kings in the uh, Eastern Conference Final? The uh, The poll is on Twitter, at TPS underscore Geek, and either vote for Prince Albert or Saskatoon. It'll be one of those two clubs. Game 5 goes tonight in Prince Albert. Up next on the program, we're going to uh, look ahead to the AJHL final. The Alberta Junior Hockey League uh, Championship Series gets going this weekend down in Brooks. Usual suspects, the Brooks Bandits and the Spruce Grove Saints. After this season, it'll be 10 years where the AJHL champion is one of those two teams. Five times it's been the Saints, The last uh, and four times it's been the Brooks Bandits over the last nine years. It'll be one of those two teams once again, and they, it's it's like they trade off. It's two years of Saints, then the next two years it's the Bandits. Two years of Saints, two years Bandits, last year's Saints. So if the uh, pattern holds true, then the Saints uh, would be uh, champs again. But the uh, Brooks Bandits, well, they've got some advantages going into this series, and we talk about that in the next segment. Brandon, you and Cheshon, the uh, voice of the Spruce Grove Saints, is my guest. We'll tee up the AGHL final next here on the Pipeline Show. Passed with a fake shot, and he goes... The other way,
1: spinning a couple more spins, two or three of them. Princeton Pashnick. Pashnick with a shot. He
0: scores! Far down! Princeton Pashnick! Are you serious? Hey, it's Princeton Pashnick from the Arizona State Sun Devils, and you're listening to The Pipeline Show.
3: The Saints are heading back to the Alberta Junior Hockey League final for the ninth time in the past 11 seasons, taking on none other than the Brooks Bandits. Games three and four will be back at the Grant Fear Arena on Monday and Tuesday, April 15th and 16th. Get your tickets at Saints.ca to come out and support the hometown club.
0: You're listening to The Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming.
3: Kneel before sun!
2: Welcome back to The Pipeline Show. Let's get inside the AJHL as the uh, Inter-Pipeline Cup Finals are set and getting ready to kick off this weekend. The Spruce Grove Saints on the road in Brooks uh, to take on the uh, Brooks Bandits uh, for the what will be the 10th year in a row. The AJHL champion will be either Spruce Grove or Brooks. Ridiculous. It's like having two dynasties going on at the exact same time, uh, almost. Uh, Brandon, you and Cheshin, the uh, voice of the Saints, joins me now. Brandon, uh, quite honestly, I mean, you have two teams. The Saints have won it five times, Brooks has won it nine times, all in the last nine years. It's it's a ridiculous uh, string of success for both of these clubs.
3: Yeah, I mean, you said it. It's, It's almost like a dynasty going on one in the north, one in the south, and they always tend to meet each other in the final. Um,. It's pretty exciting, honestly, from the perspective of a Saints organization. It's fun to always be part of that winning culture and go on that ride deep in the postseason. I'm sure the same thing on the Bandit side of things. And, you know, this year could be probably one of the toughest years to predict who's going to come out on top. Both teams are very, very evenly matched, five on five. Uh, maybe the goaltending will play a fact. to special team to the coaching. But it's going to be one heck of a series no matter which way you look at it.
2: Well, I know the teams don't play each other a ton during the regular season. Uh, what was the record between the two clubs?
3: So it was one and one. Uh, the Saints won at home back in October, and the Bandits won at home in November. But, I mean, they haven't played each other in 2019 at all. Like you said, they only see each other twice, and that happened to be back in November. And then, you know, all the pickups happen, the trade deadline happened, so... Mm-hmm. Really, both teams have a pretty different roster going into the final.
2: And the path uh, to get to the final was a bit different for each club, too. Extra round for Spruce Grove, uh, but uh, made short work of their first-round opponent. Uh And, and really, uh, quite honestly, the Bonneville Pontiacs, they were so good this season, the Saints steamrolled them and then got past uh, the uh, Sherwood Park Crusaders after going down two games to none as well. So pretty impressive job by the Saints to get to the final uh, with their they had a couple of tough opponents along the way.
3: Yeah, I mean, great job by the coaching staff, the management group to do that. Like you said, I mean, from an organizational perspective, I think we are pretty surprised to uh, get through the Bonneville Pontiacs as easy as it was. I think nobody from the entire AJHL community thought that would be a sweep. I take it back to Game 2 in Bonneville, double overtime win I also should mention that the Saints were down 3 nothing 15 minutes into that first period. They rallied back to tie it, forced double overtime, and then a fluky goal. I don't want to say a lucky goal, but Jordan Byro off the defenseman's shin pads and in the back of the net, and that brought the Saints a 2 nothing lead going back to Spruce Grove. And then I think the momentum kind of carried itself throughout the rest of the series, but that game two double overtime win, definitely a big turning point in that series. Then you move on to the Sherwood Park Crusaders. It was it was pretty cool to be part of that. I mean, two Edmonton teams that haven't played each other in over a decade in the North Finals. Um, I think they were calling it the Suburb Series or the Battle of Highway 16. I mean, both barns were absolutely packed. It was about a sixty percent to forty percent splits of fans, usually on the home side. Um, but you know, going in there and losing Game One and Game Two, going back to Spruce Grove down to nothing, was, was a little weird um game one i think the saints did deserve that loss they didn't play up to snuff game two i don't think they deserve to lose in overtime Uh, i mean they outshot the crusaders about 40 to 20 in that game and i think the crew got some lucky bounces that they scored a beautiful overtime goal but i think the saints did have momentum going back home for games three and four and i think that kind of carried itself in front of the hometown crowd saints uh beating them obviously and in games three, four, five, and six, and then moving on to, like you said, the AJHL final once again.
2: What changed uh, after going down two nothing against uh, the Crusaders? I mean, you said game two the Saints were the better team, and it sounds just by the, the shot count that that would be the case. But uh, to come get off off the mat after being down two nothing, is it just change of scenery? You go home, play in front of your own fans, and kind of get uh, rejuvenated again.
3: Yeah, I mean, change of scenery definitely had a huge part of it. You know as well as I do how much easier it is to play at home. You drive yourself there. you got your own dress. You're going to be on routine. makes life a little easier. But uh, I think the coaching staff really didn't change much. I think they are pretty happy with the Game 2 performance. They just needed to execute, put the puck in the back of the net a little bit better. Um, Brett Trenton, a guy that didn't play since November 28th, came back for Game 3. He was a huge part of the championship win last year, a huge leader, in the room and on the bench. And uh, not to say that that guy really contributed on the box score, but what he did behind the scenes, I think, really was that missing component that the Saints needed to be successful. And in saying that, he had a huge goal in Game 6 as well.
2: All right, Brandon, let's uh, look at these two rosters uh, head-to-head a bit closer. And you mentioned goaltending, how it could be a factor. Matthew Davis in net for the Saints, he's got really strong numbers and has played a lot. He's got 14 games. He's seen 285 shots. He's got a 9.16 save percentage. Um, that's really impressive. And the uh, 181 goals against average. Compare that to Pierce Charlson with the Brooks Bandits, who I'm sure is a good goaltender. But boy, he's uh, got a, a sub-87% save percentage, and he's seen a 100 fewer shots than Matthew Davis. On paper, this doesn't look like a very even comparison, uh, and very much in favor of the Saints. Is that fair?
3: I mean, yes and no. Um, I think the band has struggled a little bit in the postseason with Cam Eagles and the Okotoks Oilers. They, of course, got that first-round by, so Charleston did not face as many shots as Davis did. He wouldn't have had that, per se, easier first round. Um, when we played against Pierce Charleston this year, he played both games against us, one in October and November. He was solid, um, but I'm not going to lie when I would support Matt Davis in saying that he is maybe the better of the two goaltenders. Um, he... He was a little shaky, honestly, in in that Bonneville series a little bit at the start. I think he kind of found his comfort zone, and ever since then, he's kind of been on the ride with the rest of the group. He made some fantastic saves in Game 6 and even in Game 5 against the Crusaders to allow the Saints to hold on to their leads. But, you know, I would give the Saints maybe the upper edge on the goaltending battle, but it's not going to change the outcome of the series too, too much. I think a lot of other factors will contribute as well.
2: Well, not a surprise when you look at the leading scores in the AHL, and uh, there's a lot of uh, Saints and Bandits, a lot of Okotoks Oilers as well in that top 20. Looking closer at the two rosters, the only well, the thing that jumps out at me the, the most is the age difference. There's just I think there's only five players on the Bandits who are 18 years old or younger, uh, and uh, there's a lot of 20 year olds, a lot of 19 year olds, a couple of 21 year olds uh, on that Bandits team, so they're going to have. Uh, a bit of an advantage in terms of experience and, and age and just maybe strength. Uh, how does how do the Saints combat that?
3: Uh, I think you talk about experience. I think although we do have a very young group in that Saints locker room, I think the experience of that core going all the way to the finals in the Duel Cup last year is really key to mentoring the younger group that came in this year and kind of setting them up and teaching them how to play in these big games and these big moments in the AJHL finals. So I think, yes, in terms of age, the Bandits do have the upper edge on experience, but in terms of winning AJHL championships in their locker rooms right now, I think the Saints do have that upper edge. Um, you look at a guy like TJ Loy, Dylan Borlay, uh, Brett Trentum, Tanner Hickey, uh, all guys that were part of the core last year that are now part of the leadership group, uh, Jordan Byro, guys that I think really mentor the 16- you know, and 17-year-olds and are kind of leading the charge here. And then you look at a guy like Ryan Peckford that came back from the WHL midseason, obviously he's 19 years old, has some extensive playoff experience in the dub. He obviously a huge asset as well. So the experience is a factor, but I think that the Saints and Bandits, if anything, are pretty evenly matched at the end of the day.
2: Does home ice play a, a big factor in this? We talked about it, how it was beneficial for the Saints to come back after going down 2 nothing to Sherwood Park. Uh, could be the situation again where they might have to use home ice to their, uh, to their effect, but uh, you can't win the series without winning at least one game in Brooks.
3: Exactly, you're correct. And you know, going down to the CRA, it's a very tough place to play in. Um, it's it's tough. It's it's like the Saint Louis Blues playing in Winnipeg right now. It's a tough barn to play in. I mean both teams are six hours away. You're not gonna get like we did in Sherwood Park, forty percent Saints fans. You're maybe gonna get ten percent Saints fans. So those banded fans as well, you know, they know how to get under your skin though. They'll yell at the goalies from the upper level. They'll, you know, let the coaches know from behind the glass. They'll bug the guys in the penalty box. They'll, you know, hum and haw at all the, the calls that don't go their way. So it is a tough place to play. In, but like you said, I mean, team's got to win one on the road if you're the Saints, if you want to take home that championship again. And, you know, coming back to the Grand Fury as well for games three, four, and potentially six, um, The Saints fans have been unbelievable, as you know, every single year, Um, especially in the tail end of that Sherwood Park series. The building was absolutely packed. The atmosphere in there is is unbelievable. So home ice will play a factor, but, uh, you know, the team that's going to win the series is going to have to get one done on the uh, opposing team's ice surface.
2: Brandon, you and the voice of the Spruce Grove Saints, my guest here on the Pipeline Show, setting up the AJHL final, uh, the schedule, pretty tight one. You got back-to-backs this weekend in Brooks, Friday, Saturday. Then uh, the return game, three and four, on Monday, Tuesday. Uh, and then you get a couple of days off before you get back at it again if uh, games five, six, and seven are necessary. But uh, five games, or four games, rather, in five days, I mean, it's equal for both teams, uh, of course, but uh, that's a lot of hockey in a very short period of time.
3: Yeah, you're correct. And, I mean... The schedule has been like that ever since the start of the postseason. The schedule has looked exactly the same um, for us. We only had home ice advantage in round number one, so we're always on the road to start games one and two. Um, I think part of that is to make sure we're on the same track with the BCHL, the lineup for the Bill Cup. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think the coaching staff and the management staff has done a good job this weekend in setting the guys down a day early and allowing them to stay that extra night after the game on Saturday and drive back rested on Sunday to be rested for, like you said, a game on Monday and Tuesday. So we'll see how it goes, but, I mean, your young kid, they're in good shape. But uh, you, no matter who you look at, no matter what level, it is a tough schedule no matter what.
2: Now, uh, for casual fans who uh, might not uh, follow the, the Junior A loop as, as closely as uh, they probably should, uh, the national championship is in Brooks, so they're going to be there automatically. Uh if uh, the Saints don't win this series, do they still have a, a, another option, another avenue to get there, or are they done too?
3: So that's the part where it gets really interesting. Um, I've asked a lot of people. I've gotten some straight answers. I've gotten some confused answers. <laughs> to the best of my knowledge, the winner of the AJHL automatically goes to the World Cup regardless of who it is. But if the Bandits are to win the AJ, the BCHL team will automatically be in the RBC Cup. Now, if the Saints win the AJHL, then, you know, that Doyle Cup is a battle, meaning, you know, whoever wins that will go to the RBC Cup. Um, Personally, I don't agree with sending the Bandits to the Doyle Cup. I don't think there's a reason. Uh, It means nothing. I would rather have some competition for, you know, both teams, both sides, both fan bases, regardless if it's Vernon or Prince George. So, to the best of my knowledge the A.J. winner has to go to the dual Cup no matter what. If the Bandits win the A.J., the B.C.H.L. team is automatically in.
2: Interesting. Very interesting. That uh, adds yeah. a lot of fire, uh, fuel to the fire uh, for the uh, A.J.H.L. final. Brandon, looking forward to the uh, the games. Hope I can get out uh, and watch uh, a couple of games in Spruce Grove. Uh, at least uh, if we get the chance, the All-Kings are uh, done for a little bit now so I might be able to swing out there for games three and four. Appreciate your time today.
3: Yeah, You betcha. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure.
2: Should be a good series. Hopefully, it's a long series, and uh, hopefully, the uh, Saints find a way to get to the RBC Cup this year. Uh, whatever uh, sort of a channel that an avenue they have to take to make that happen. Uh, hopefully, it happens. It'd be great to see both of these clubs at the RBC Cup. Number of these players will move on from the Alberta Junior Hockey League and play Division One NCAA hockey, and that's where we're headed. With the final segment of uh, the episode this week, as the NCAA national tournament wraps up, the Frozen Four kicked off yesterday. There are two games, and the national championship is set uh, for Saturday. We preview the final and we look at the last night's games as well. Dave Starman from ESPN and CBS Sports Network, he's my guest next here on the Pipeline Show. <laughs> Minnesota Duluth gets it again, Tynan goes out of there on a terrific call. third power play of the game for the Bulldogs, Fontaine dropped it in the middle, Break pass, Conley
1: scores! Mike Conley, power play goal! Somebody shut the board!
3: Ladies and gentlemen, from Calgary, Alberta, Mike Conley, University of Minnesota Duluth
2: National Championships 2011, and you're listening to the Pipeline Show.
3: Ah, you babes all about your Madison shoes. We got a thing we call the Madison Blues. We do the Madison Blues. We do the Madison Blues. We do the Madison Blues, baby. And Rockaway right away your oh, blues. Whoa.
2: Passion,
0: talent, development. NCAA hockey offers all that and its players graduate at a 90% rate. Joe Pavelski. Backhand scores! Wow, what a goal. Johnny Gaudreau. Go! and Tori Crouper were stars on campus before the NHL stage. Whether you are a fan or a player, nothing compares to college hockey. Visit collegehockeyinc.com and follow at College Hockey. Champions of the college hockey world! You're listening to The Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming. Hey, as they say in hockey...
2: Let's do that hockey. We're back on the Pipeline Show. We close out this week's episode uh, looking ahead to the National Championship game for college hockey as uh, two thrillers went on Thursday. I thought both games were really entertaining and part of that might be because of the uh, broadcast. Uh, south of the border was uh, top class and uh, as usual, Dave Starman in between periods uh, knocking it out of the park and he's my guest once again. Uh, Dave, terrific job yesterday. Looking forward to Saturday as well. Uh, what what was your takeaway Let's start with the uh, the first game between the Friars and the Minnesota Duluth Bulldogs. What, what are you going to remember from that game?
0: Uh, it was funny because it, it was one of those games that really needed a cup of coffee early. You know, it just it didn't have a lot of didn't have a lot of push to it as each team was feeling the other one out and their teams that are built somewhat similar. So they're you know, it was almost like it was like looking in the mirror at times as, yeah. as each team stared across the way. But you know, I thought that as the game went on two things emerged. Number one is you saw the passion, the intensity, and the energy that Providence College brings to every game they play And that's certainly a reflection of their head coach, Nate Lehman, and, and, and the style that he has gotten his group to play. But on the other side of it, you really saw the stick and culture and veteran-savvy employees of Minnesota Duluth. And they're just, they're never in a game they don't feel comfortable in. I think it's a really unique quality about this group, and a lot of it has to do with, with their head coach, who seems to, Get calmer and more relaxed. The bigger the games get, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that you know they're now chasing their third title in nine years and and playing in their third straight national title games. I mean, this is a group that knows how to handle pressure. It's a group that knows how to play uh, from behind if they have to. They know how to chase the game. They know how to not spend too much nervous energy on the things that are kind of out of their realm. And uh, once again, Hunter Shepard proved that he is you know in the upper echelon of bull tenders in, in the NCAA. I thought the third period. He made four or five saves that were game savers, and as usual, UMD's fourth line proved to be the line that could determine the game. Ross, Axel, and centered by Jade Miller, Uh, that line has been laid out since the beginning of the year. I think it's the best fourth line in the NCAA, and each and every game, that line seems to factor in and do really good things.
2: Felt like, uh, for me, almost like a heavyweight fight where two, two juggernauts are just kind of trying to, as you described, uh, trying to feel each other out for a while. And then you start getting the bigger blows and eventually UMD wins that game. And you contrast that with uh, the second game with Denver and UMass. That was like a featherweight fight where it was just speed, speed, speed. And guys, I mean, that was a really entertaining hockey game. Goes to overtime. Obviously, that's going to be a thriller, uh, no matter what level you're playing at. Um, what do you think of that game? And and obviously there was a lot of controversy with the the three players tossed out and the the one who wasn't who probably should have been. Uh, what do you think of the UMass Denver game?
0: It was it was a really unique game. I thought for bits and pieces of it, you know, you have to, Sorry, Denver gets to lead one nothing early on the power play, and you know their power play not been connecting very well. So I mean, you know, they get that going for them, and, and they're starting to feel good. I thought the pace off the hop was was pretty good, and then Denver really gets into the penalty trouble and and the UMass power play goes to work, and you saw the three goals they scored. I didn't think that that the goaltender Larson looked great on the third one. It like he looked terrible on the second one. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I've kind of walked this mile where you're in a big game and and what do you do with a goalie that seems to be struggling? Mm -hmm. And my first reaction was I would have pulled him. And I give David Carr a lot of credit for, he obviously knows his team better than I do, but I I give him a lot of credit for, for leaving Larson in and letting him fight his way through it. And I thought from... You know, the time he gave up that third goal on, he was as good as he'd been through the parts of the season where he was terrific. And he gave him a chance to win. And Denver in the third period, it's funny, you know, a lot of, we're, we're sitting on the set. Everybody's starting to take stuff off because we're not doing a postgame show. So we're starting to get, take their earpieces out and take their microphones off and that kind of thing. And I'm looking around the booth and my like, boys, I've watched Denver all year. I've seen this movie. And so they're, they're not going quietly. I wouldn't start backing up just yet. You know, then they get the two goals and, and and send it overtime. I I thought Denver played as advertised. I thought that UMass played as advertised. They they both came at you with high speed, high skill, active defense, scores, goaltending good. I I, I think that in in parts of this game, Greg Carvel would look at his goalie and say there are two goals he'd like back. I think David Carver would look at his goalie and say he probably won all three back. But but in the end, uh, Denver's youth made a big push in the third period. That's going to be part of their future. And UMass's defensive core made a ton happen, I thought, as the game continued
2: to move. Yeah, Cole Gutman, terrific performance from him. The Freshman gets three points in that game. Uh, He was terrific and uh, clutch in that third period. Uh, Boy, I was so impressed with the speed of the the Minutemen and how quickly they can move the puck, not just the skating, but, boy, they fire the puck when they're passing to each other and it's tape to tape. Uh, I was really impressed with their puck movement.
0: It's, It's funny, early on in the game, it looked like they were trying to figure things out you know, then they got on that first power play, and all of a sudden they got some time and space to play with, because Denver's a pretty good team at eliminating that. They got some time and space to play with, and they got their hands moving, and all of a sudden they started connecting four or five passes at a clip, and they started getting their feet going a little bit. Uh, they, boy, did their onions start to bloom, you know what I mean? And, yeah. and it, it just it just started to go, and and that's when I thought that they really hit their comfort zone. And, and, you know, UMass is one of those teams that they can play East-West, and they can do it well, and they've got some puck possession guys that and they've got some players with some high skill level that can make some things happen when they control the puck. But I, I thought as, as the game went through the second period, they were, they were continuing to move it. And I thought as the third period went on, their possession time went down. Denver, obviously, with a little more urgency to their game, controlled a bit more of the pace of the game. But the the name of that game last night for a good chunk of it was skill. And I thought it was a really good representation of where we have taken the game of hockey in terms of. The pace that it can be played at, the skill that it can be played at, and the ability of players to make plays in small areas.
2: Dave, I was watching the game yesterday uh, with my uh, father-in-law, and with, with all the guys getting kicked out of the game, he was getting a little frustrated. He didn't think they were deserving, and you know, at a lot at other levels, those might have not been game misconducts, but at the collegiate level, and you described it really well. Any contact to the head means you're in uh, in trouble. You agreed with all three of the ones that uh, that were called.
0: Here's here's a good one because I tweeted last night when I saw a lot of the reaction going on. I'm like, hey, listen, here's here's the deal. You can hate the rule, and there are a lot of people who do, but to the officials' credit, on all three calls, they got it right. Yeah, and I don't think it was a really well officiated game. I was not a not a huge fan of the way the game got called, but you know what? That happens. It's subjective. And and you know, but moving forward, if if you don't if you don't like the contact to the head rule, and you want to go back and revisit it again. I think you can have some open dialogue. I am all for protecting the head. I do not think that a player who comes in and makes direct contact to the head, especially when it looks somewhat intentional, should be given a slap on the wrist. This is, you know, I joke with people all the time. This is not your father's game anymore. This game has changed. This game has evolved and head hunting is not a part of it. I know a lot of the old timers are like, well, too many players are skating with their head down. But you know what, that that's an issue that we have to work out in terms of teaching kids how to play a little bit more heads up hockey and, and, you know, we as a, we as a federation, Hockey Canada as a federation, we want to own that. That's one thing. But the bottom line is this, you cannot by any means condone any kind of direct contact to the head. And if it costs you five for the purpose of making sure we get it out of the game, then it's, I think it's something that's got to continue to get considered.
2: Now, yeah, at one point you did mention that you thought they uh, were all deserved of uh, the game misconducts, and uh, the last one I think you said uh, maybe even a DQ. What was the difference? What's the difference between a disqualification and a game misconduct? Would it carry a one-game suspension?
0: Yeah, if you get DQ'd, you're automatically out for the next game. If it's okay. a game misconduct, you're out for that game. But if you get three game misconducts, you serve a one-game suspension. And to me, the difference in the determination is the violence of the act. And you know, there are times where. You know, you can lower your shoulder, you don't think you're gonna go shoulder to shoulder and sometimes you get the head directly because the player you're going to hit is you know, is trying to duck around you, or you're six four and the player's five nine. I mean it, but there's also the concept of the, the the player that's delivering the hit, it is their responsibility to make sure that they do not hit the defenseless player. And sometimes that can happen so quickly. So so let's say, you know, you're five nine, I'm six foot and I lower my shoulder, try to get shoulder to shoulder, and I go shoulder to head. But you can clearly see that I was just trying to take you off the puck. You want to call a five there, no game misconduct, that's fine. If you think that there was a follow-through to increase the violence of the head, you want to throw the game misconduct in there, okay, that's that barometer. And then if you do something that is really egregious, I honestly have no issue with it becoming a DQ. Hmm.
2: We'll get on to the final game here in a second. I want to ask about the Bobby Trevino elbow at the end, though, that didn't get called at all. And uh, I don't know if that's something that at the collegiate level can be reviewed or anything. David Carl certainly wanted an explanation on the Denver bench. All
0: right, so I'm a little fuzzy on top to bottom because I've heard it a couple of different ways. So I don't, I don't want to lead your audience into... You know, down the wrong path, but sure. what I do know is very recently, we did a game between St. Cloud State and Minnesota Duluth at St. Cloud, and there was a collision in the corner just before the end of the third period, and there was no call made on the original hit, but as soon as it and then the buzzer sounded to send the game into overtime, and the video guy for St. Cloud, T.J. Ginger, who had played at Notre Dame, called out to the bench and he said, hey, i am watching this thing on video. You, you might want to challenge this. You might want to have to take a look at this. Because there was definitely contact that, hey, that should probably be a major. And after the review, the referees came out of the box. It was the first whistle after the incident had happened. Officials came out of the box and said, yeah, you know what? This is a five minute and a game is conducted. And, and Minnesota Duluth wound up, sc- uh, no, St. they wound up scoring on the power play and won the game in overtime. And so I was thinking last night, same kind of thing. Now, there's a couple of stories going back and forth that they asked David Perlick to use his timeout. He said, no. He was going to get another timeout once overtime started anyway. So I, I don't I don't exactly know the true story. I've heard a couple different versions from a couple different players. I mean, from a couple different sources. I'm not big into hearsay. So I'm, I'm hoping that the actual explanation comes out along with everything that has come out today. I mean, I thought it was a, a legitimate call if they had made the major there. I mean, I yeah. don't know if that would have, that would have warranted it. But I'm trying to get a little bit more squared away on what the exact protocol was at that point in the game regarding uh, whether it was a review, timeout needed, and whether or not the officials had the opportunity to take a look at it before anybody challenged it.
2: Fair enough, uh, Dave Starman, uh, analyst extraordinaire with ESPN, CBS Sports as well. Uh, you can watch the uh, Frozen Four, the finale, the national championship game on uh, Saturday tomorrow. That's uh, south of the border on ESPN, and which which channel, which ESPN channel is it on, Dave? <laughs>
0: I think it is ESPN2 down here and TSN2 up there. Yes,
2: okay. Let's set up the uh, the big game, uh, UMass against Minnesota Duluth. Uh, the first thing that jumps out at me is that power play for UMass, so deadly. How key is it for Minnesota Duluth to just keep this game 5-on-5? Five
0: five? Uh, here's the funny part about it. Until about a month ago, the best penalty-killing unit in the country to almost a historic pace was Minnesota Duluth. And mm-hmm. then they did a hiccup in St. Cloud where the Huskies lit them up two games in a row, and then it struggled again the following weekend until it finally righted itself, and I don't think it's got the edge that it had, but it's still pretty good. So, you know, I think it's a very intriguing matchup for the fans at home in terms of what to watch, and that would be the UMD penalty kill against the UMass power play. Those are two elite-level units that could go head-to-head and, and I think, determine this game. If UMass doesn't score a power play goal in the game against Minnesota Duluth, I think they're going to struggle. I'll be honest with you, because UMD has got that veteran poise. It's got that savvy. They know how to manage games. I really think if they don't do anything to beat themselves, they should be somewhat the favorite in this game. But on the other hand, if UMD does get into penalty trouble, and again, you're not playing with your conference referees. You're playing with guys that may be seeing you for the first time all season long. So whereas an NCHC crew or a Hockey East crew might know where you're pushing the envelope and where you're not, you know, a non-conference crew might not. So this is where each team's got to... They've got to really make sure they take care of their own discipline. And UMass is a faster team; they can wind up drawing UMD innocent some penalties with their speed. So, I think the dynamic of this game is you set up really well: the power play of UMass and the penalty kill of UMD. To me, the winner of that game within the game probably wins the game.
2: Uh, I was uh, impressed with uh, Mario Ferraro yesterday uh, with uh, UMass, and I, I saw the uh, one of the regional games that the uh, Minutemen played as well, and he was really good there. Um, I I'm sure he gets overshadowed a lot because of uh Kale McCarr and McCarr obviously I, he'd be my vote for the Hobie Baker uh, today, but uh, Ferraro was a really really good player. And I, I'm not sure if it was you yesterday, uh, but uh, somebody made the point that uh, Greg Carwell actually said it on my show as well that he's kind of the guy that makes it go uh, for that team, even though McCarr gets all the highlights and, and the headlines. Uh, Ferraro is the guy that uh, he's the straw that stirs the drink.
0: It's funny, he was a really good minus two yesterday, if, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah. It, and the thing I like about Ferraro, he's a really, really good transitional defenseman. He's a big, thick kid who reads plays well, he gaps up really well. Like most of the teams in hockey, most of the teams in hockey are really good with their sticks. They did stick discipline, good stick positioning, a lot of poke checking, a lot of stick checking, whereas HC is a little bit more of, you know, if you want to go to the net, you're going to eat lumber type of thing. And But I, I was really impressed with Ferraro all season long, and how well he uses the stick to defend, how well he kills plays, how well he caps. how well he angles, and how quickly he can transition from picking a puck off the stick of an opposing player and turning the puck and getting himself going north pretty quick and joining. He's I, I just think his hockey IQ is terrific and I and I think his ability to read the rush and gamble a little bit is is a good thing. I, I wouldn't say he's a cowboy, but he's got a little wild west mentality in him. When it comes to taking a risk to to shut down a play and get going the other way,
2: he's a real good skater too. And that, I mean, everybody yep. it seems like if you're going to play for uh, Greg Carville, the first thing you got to be able to do is skate. It, it seems like everybody on that team has got wheels.
0: If you're going to make the NCAA tournament, you got to have a team that can skate. That's really what it comes down to. It's very rare uh, that you don't. The, the game is so evolved, and the you know, teams that kind of have the bigger, older stronger faster players are starting to make a little bit more hay than even 10 years ago where just the blue blood programs with the high-end guys were were dominating but the, the one thing you see in a lot of these programs and i get to watch a lot of them practice which i'm really fortunate uh, the one thing you see is the emphasis on skill development and skating still at the ncaa level with with a lot of these players because each one of these coaches know that if they want to move their players on they've got to move on players that can skate but the other thing is if they want to make the ncaa tournament try to win a national championship uh, the key cog in their wheel is going to be guys that can move.
2: Now, when you look at the Duluth Bulldogs and just uh, so much experience now on that team, I mean, if you're a junior uh, on the, in that program, you've been to this game three years in a row now. Uh, I mean, that experience is just invaluable. How key could that be uh, when we see these two teams lace them up tomorrow?
0: Well, you know the old, the old expression, right? You can't buy experience. And UMD has got boatloads of it. And it starts from the top of their lineup and a guy like Parker McKay. And I thought his line was... Really, really good yesterday too. I mean, they had two lines going last night, but Kai's line was one—the uh, one with Richards in the middle—and then that fourth line with with Jade Miller in the middle. And and they were—I thought they did a, a good chunk of the damage from a two hundred foot perspective. But you know, here's the thing: Minnesota Duluth to me is much more of a sum of its parts than than a lot of other teams I watch. And people talk about their depth, and they do have depth, but they don't—they don't have anything in their roster that, other than maybe Perunovic, that makes you stand up and say, you know, whoa, this this is big time but they've got a lot of guys that are maybe on the A-minus side of the ledger as opposed to the A-plus side of the ledger, and and they've got some really good B-pluses too, and that to me is is a huge part of their game. Mikey Anderson is as smart a player as there is. He's got an uncanny ability just to get pucks through from the blue line. Uh, Dylan Sandberg in the second half of the season, ever since the World Juniors, has really started to join the offensive rush much more and and make more offensive forays down the left-wing side where he can use that big body to drive the net and and create some havoc. And you know, a guy that doesn't get a whole lot of attention, you know, Mike Anderson does. Matty Anderson doesn't. Those two kids have, with Sandberg have been teammates, you know, since they were in diapers. And you know, Matty is a another defensive that can skate. Louis Rail's become a good defender who who's got some mobility. Nick Wolf is you know just a big oak tree with arms that shuts things down and keeps people honest. So it, it's a it's a real good defense core that that can make a lot happen. And the experience of their back end to me is a huge reason why i look at them as a team that can repeat just because of the fact that they don't get rattled and they how to manage games
2: i know better than to ask you for a predi- uh, prediction because uh, i don't want to put you in an awkward situation uh, my pre-tournament bracket had duluth and st cloud in the final with duluth winning uh first team uh, to win back to back since uh, what denver in 2004 2005
0: that is correct yeah denver 04 and 05 it's funny to think too because you could have a good st cloud you might have a st cloud umass matchup if, if st cloud had gotten through the bracket, and I was always thinking to myself, you know, that, maybe that would have been fun to watch too. But mm-hmm. uh, like, I think here's the thing. I, I would say to you this. To, to me, it is. it comes down to, I believe, if UMass gets three or four power plays in this game and they can connect at least once, it will. It could potentially determine the game.
2: All right. We'll watch for that. Uh, worth noting as well, Parker McKay and Kale McCarr, both uh, leading their respective teams in scoring, both from Alberta. Dave, I'm just going to leave you with that.
0: Uh, the pride of Irma Alberta is Parker Mackay.
2: <laughs> yep, following in uh, Carson Sousi's uh, footsteps as a uh, an Irma <laughs> right. Alberta product as well. Dave, uh, really appreciate your time as always. Uh, fantastic job on the broadcast. Uh, really looking forward to the final tomorrow.
0: Thanks, I'll talk to you soon.
2: He's the best, Dave Starman uh, of ESPN and uh, CBS Sports Network. Uh, always does a terrific job. Not just when he's on the show, uh, although that's the case too. But uh, when I watch those games out of the States and am able to watch the games where Dave's part of the broadcast team, usually in between periods, uh, because this time of year at the Frozen Four, uh, he does such a great job, really is able to take um, complicated scenarios on the ice, things he's looking for, and he's able to describe it and break it down in a way that uh, is easily digestible for people who maybe aren't wired that way uh, to watch hockey that way. Like me, I'm, I'm actually not an X and O's guy. Uh, but when uh, a guy like Dave explains things and breaks things down, makes it a lot more interesting, for sure. That's going to wrap up this week's episode of the show. Uh, before I go, though, a couple things I wanted to mention. Remind you that uh, if you have broken hockey sticks uh, laying around your house and you happen to be in the Edmonton area, or if you're out on the East Coast, uh, get them to the store next door. And uh, if you're in the Edmonton area, the way to do that is to take them to United Sport & Cycle just south of uh, white ave they have a uh, collection bin they're going to take all the sticks they're going to ship them out to the store next door if you're on the east coast there are a few more drop spots uh, go to the store next and uh, they'll have everything that you need to know about where to take the sticks if you're out there also you can see the catalog all the what do they do with the sticks all the things that they make great stuff for your uh, recreation cave so you know uh, benches and chairs and tables and picture frames and uh, they just there's so many options really cool items there uh, for sure um, something for any kind of a sports fan that's for sure and they even take ideas so if you have some sort of you know concept in your head you can uh, explain it to them and they might uh, be able to execute that for you and build it for you and uh, bottom line is this is a company that uh, uh, works with and and hires supports people with disabilities uh, all the employees there have disabilities it's people uh, it can be challenging for people with disabilities to find employment and uh, the store next door helping out their community by doing that. It's uh, fantastic. Uh, I was interested in supporting it. Hopefully, by uh, talking about them on the show the last several months and and, uh, uh, getting the word out there, I've spoken with the Edmonton Oil Kings. They're going to be taking a bunch of sticks to United Cycle and uh, shipping them off as well. So a really worthy cause and uh, kudos to all the folks there uh, behind the scenes at the store next door. Lastly, a quick apology for uh, patrons who... Uh, sign up and support the show through patreon.com slash the pipeline show you usually get early access to all the shows this week's this last episode here this week just came together so quickly that uh, didn't really actually have time to uh, put up the early access stuff at the patreon page uh, so that is abnormal if you've been a patron for a while you know that uh, that's normally the case that uh, you'll have heard all of these interviews for two or three days but Um, with uh, the Frozen Four timing and uh, the way the CHL playoffs, things changed so quickly this time of year that uh, these interviews kind of came together all at the same time. So there was not time to get the early access up. So I apologize for that, but I do sincerely appreciate everybody who has signed up to help support the show at patreon.com slash Show. Next week on the show, we'll continue on. We'll maybe put a cap on the NCAA season. We'll look ahead to the playoffs in the USHL right around the corner. We'll get you up, caught up to speed on the CHL playoffs. Maybe we'll know the third round of matchups across all three leagues and uh, we'll go from there. with It's playoff season, everybody, and uh, the World U18s, not that far away either. So we might get back to the 2019 draft spotlight. We'll tackle all of that next week. So between now and then, get out and watch some junior college hockey so that you and I can talk about it next week on the Pipeline Show. Till then, my name's Keith Flaming. See ya.